Chapter 4 of Seeing Things at Night This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Things at Night by Haywood Bruin Promises and Contracts and Clocks I am one of those people, says the flapper in Beauty and Mary Blair, to whom life is a very great puzzle. So many people seem to get used to living, but I don't. I can't seem to get up any real satisfactory philosophy or find anybody or anything to help me about it. I want everything, little or big, fixed up in my mind before I can proceed. Even as a very small child, I always wanted my plans made in advance. Once, when Mother had a bad, sick headache, I sat on the edge of her bed and begged her to tell me if she thought she was going to die. So, if she was, I could plan to go and live with my Aunt Margaret. I was an odious infant, but all the same, I really wanted to know, and that's the way I am to this day. I want to know what the probabilities are in order to act accordingly. And without a doubt she was odious, but only in the same way that practically everybody else is odious. For we live in a world which is governed by promises and contracts and clocks. If there actually is any such thing as free will, aren't we the idiots to fetter it? The chance of doing things on impulse are being continually diminished. There are points in the city now where it is not possible to cross the street without the permission of the policeman. Stop, go, keep off the grass, no trespassing, beware of the dog, watch your hat and overcoat, positively no checks cashed, do not feed or annoy the animals. How can a free and adventurous soul survive in such a world? Don Marquis had celebrated the exploit of one brave rebel. We think it was Father Gil Finch who strode into the monkey house and crying, down with the tyranny of the capitalist system, or words to that effect, threw a peanut into the baboon's cage. We know an even bolder soul who makes it a point of never watching his hat and overcoat in direct defiance of the edict. But he says that the world has become so cowed by rules that nothing ever happens. Even the usual avenues of escape have been beset with barbed wire. There was liquor, for instance. There still is. But the prohibitionists have been devilishly wise. By arranging that it shall be ladled out by prescription, no matter how lavish, they have reduced drinking to the prosaic level of premeditation, along with all the other activities of the world. Things have come to such a pass that drinking has now been restricted to men with real executive ability. It's no longer the solace of the irresponsible, but the reward of foresight. Once the easy escape from dull and set routine lay in stepping on board a steamer and sailing for distant and purple shores. They are not so purple any more. No traveler can feel much like a free and footloose adventurer after he has spent two weeks in conference with the State Department, presented a certificate confirming the fact of his birth, gathered together the receipts of his income tax payments, and obtained a letter from his pastor. 
Even though he go to the ends of the earth, the adventure travels only by the express and engraved permission of the United States government. Oceans and mountain ranges cannot alter the fact that he is on a leash. Of course, to free souls, the whole system is monstrous. The fact that a man suddenly feels a desire to go to Greece on some rainy Tuesday afternoon is no sign at all that he will still want to go two weeks come Wednesday. The only proper procedure for the rebel is to obtain passports for a number of places for which he has not the slightest inclination on the hope that some day or other, through a sudden change of wind, he may be struck with yearning. Train journeys are almost as bad as sea voyages. Go into any railroad station in town and ask the man at the window for a ticket, and he will invariably inquire, where do you want to go? No provision is made for the casual traveler without a destination. The query, what train have you got, meets with scant courtesy. Our own system is the shop for trains. It is possible to walk up and down in front of the gates and look over the samples before making a selection. But our practice is to take the first one. To be sure, this has led us into going to a good many places to which we didn't want to go. But it has also saved us from visiting any number of others to which we ought to go. Moreover, confidentially, we have one trick by which we slash through the red tape of railroad precision. Only last Thursday, we told the man with a great show of determination that we wanted to go to Poughkeepsie and bought a ticket for that place. Then, when the conductor wasn't looking, we slipped off at Terrytown. Going to the theater, getting married or divorced, are all carried on under the same objectionable conditions. Seats eight weeks in advance, say the advertisements of some of the popular shows and others. How can anybody possibly want to do something eight weeks in advance? It makes taking in a matinee a matter as dignified to all intents and purposes as writing a will or doing some other service for posterity. There are in this country statesmen who worry from time to time that people do not marry as young as they used to, if at all. How can it be expected that they will? The life force is powerful and may prevail, but nature never had, within its intent, a license, a witness, bridesmaid, a plain gold ring, a contract with a caterer, a bargain with a printer, and an engagement with a minister. End of chapter 4 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas